Please, people of God, turn your Bibles in the first place to to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17, as we continue on in our series to the Beatitudes, we come this morning to our Lord's sixth Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've already read a few passages dealing with the heart this morning and the reading of the law and the assurance of pardon, but now we turn to a few more, the first of them being Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, we'll read just verses 9 and 10, where the prophet describes the heart this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Let's turn also to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, where the Holy Spirit illustrates the purity of heart that Jesus says is blessed by God. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was Envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, if I said I will speak thus, I would have, been, I would have betrayed the generation of your, of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For those, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." In the last place, let's turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. 
Revelation 22 with the eye of faith. Let's see what John saw in the first five verses of the chapter. Revelation 22, at verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by now it will likely come as little surprise to you to hear me say that our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God is a promise-keeping God. It's something that I've emphasized at, at various times, isn't it, throughout my preaching ministry here. And the reason for that is because this reality never ceases to amaze me. It's a reality that has captured my heart, as I hope it's captured your hearts as well. Our God is a promise-keeping God. He's a God who doesn't just make promises, but He keeps all the promises that He makes. Boys and girls, when God says something, He never speaks with His fingers crossed behind His back. But God always says what He means, and He means what He says, and God always does what what He says He will do. All His promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that here in the sixth beatitude, we're confronted with what I believe to be perhaps the greatest promise in all the Bible that the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart shall see God, and not just His back as Moses saw in the cleft of the rock, but the pure in heart will see His face. They'll see God in all His transcendent majesty and, and glory. In my estimation, this is the greatest promise in all the world. It's greater than receiving a kingdom. It's greater than being comforted. It's, it's greater than inheriting the whole earth. Each of those are, are great and glorious promises. Those are promises that, that we all need to hold as jewels in our hands and treasure in our hearts. Those precious jewels that belong to those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are those promises really compared to this promise that you and I shall See God. What other promise in all of Scripture should capture our hearts and minds more than this one? That a day is coming when the pure in heart shall see God, when they shall see His face. It's a heavenly promise, a wonderful, powerful, amazing promise. And yet, when we hear this heavenly promise, we are confronted with a humbling problem, aren't we? Because the qualification that Jesus 
sets before us, in order that we might see God, is one that none of us can ever possibly meet or attain on our own. Blessed are the pure in heart, he says, for they and, and they alone shall see God. As we sang from Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who shall see God? And the answer the psalmist gives, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. And those words narrow the list way down, don't they? Because as we heard from the prophet Jeremiah, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then the prophet tells us there's only one person who does understand, and that's the Lord himself. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to each man according to his ways, to reward him according to the fruits of his deeds. And this congregation is the problem that we're faced with this morning. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the Bible says your hearts are desperately sick. Your hearts are deceitful. Your hearts are impure. And there's nothing that you can do in or of yourself to cover that up or to hide that reality. The heart is the seat of religious loyalty. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, their hearts were, were loyal to God and to God alone. From, their, from the very core of their being, they were oriented to God to, to live in a, in a Godward direction. As one theologian has said, they were like the heart of man was oriented like a plant toward the sun. His heart was, was tuned in to God's frequency. But then his heart was led astray. Giving in to the temptation of the devil, the man's heart, his, his loyalties became divided. Even after the, the mother promise was given, even after having faith in that promise, Adam's aim as a believer to please God was still mingled and mixed with being a lord to, to please self. And this is the situation in which we find ourselves this morning. We're all born with a serious heart problem. And absent the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prognosis isn't good. The heart, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, is always at the seat of all our problems. Take any problem in life, Anything that leads to wretchedness and find out its cause, all troubles arise from the human heart. And that's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, isn't it? Out of the heart from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, and out of the heart of man proceed every evil deed. As we heard from Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees thought that they could somehow mask or cover up the ugliness of their hearts with the cleanliness of their hands. And that's why they challenged Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands before eating. But boys and girls, the Pharisees' concern was not so much with physical hygiene as it was with ritual purity. The Pharisees believed that you had to 
wash your hands before eating because in the course of the day you, you came into contact with, with pagan Gentiles. You exchanged money, you traded goods, and your hands touched their hands. And so in their estimation, that made them ceremonially unclean. And so lest they become defiled on the inside, they had to wash their hands on the outside. They thought that their outward purity was the guarantee of their inward purity. They thought that as long as they were clean on the outside, God would see that they were also clean on the inside. And so they added all sorts of of caveats and, and technicalities to God's law to ensure that outward purity. But in the process of doing that, in the process of adding all those caveats and technicalities to the law of God, they they missed the very point or the very heart of the law. And so what did Jesus say to them? He said, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching as commandments of God the traditions of men. Boys and girls, this was the problem. The Pharisees were seeking to honor God with their lips, honor God with their hands, but their hearts were far from him. Their hearts were sick, desperately sick. Their hearts deceived them. Their hearts tricked them into thinking that God cared more about the outside than the inside, that God cared more about the action than the motivation that was behind the action. And this we understand by nature is our problem as well. God is after our whole heart. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But we sometimes think that we can get by with giving him only half our heart. You see, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not speaking primarily of of a moral purity, but rather of a of a single-minded purpose. When we hear the word purity, we perhaps think right away about, about sexual purity, for example, and how we need to put to death the lusts of the flesh in pursuit of living lives of chastity and purity. And that's certainly true. We, we do need to strive for that. There should not even be a hint of sexual impurity among us. But the pursuit of sexual purity is but a subcategory, a subset of of the overarching purity of heart that Jesus is describing here. Because Jesus is describing a purity of heart that has at the heart of it a a wholehearted devotion or a single-minded devotion to God. The heart, you see, is is command central. In the Bible, the word heart encompasses not not just the feelings, not just the affections of a man, but the heart encompasses what he thinks, what he wills, what he desires, what he chooses, what he does. The heart is, is the driving seat. It's command central. And that's why Solomon said we need to keep our hearts with all vigilance because out of the heart come the, the springs of life. Everything we think, say, and do flows from the heart. And so to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, He's saying, blessed are those who are pure, not merely on the surface, but in the center of their being, 
and at the source of their every activity, single-mindedness. That's what Christ is setting before us in this beatitude. The impure heart is double-minded, and therefore it is unstable in all its ways, as James says. But the pure heart is single-minded. And so James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Or to think of it another way, purity of heart is really about sincerity. Purity of heart is about loyalty and, and integrity so that the inside matches the outside and vice versa. The impure heart, you see, can have all the, appearance, all the appearances of outward religiosity. That's what we see in the Pharisees. But the impure heart has its feet in, in both camps, as it were. It's, it's not marked by a single-minded, wholehearted devotion to God and to the cause of His kingdom. But it's double-minded. The 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to will one thing. And that's the essence of what Jesus is setting before us here. A purity of heart is to will one thing. It's to have a single-minded devotion to God, to glorify God rather than to glorify God and to glorify ourselves a little bit too. Single-minded, wholehearted devotion to God. And so the pure heart is not so easily swayed. The pure heart is not easily allured by the pledges of the world. The pure heart recognizes that it cannot serve two masters, but it can only serve one master. It can only serve the Lord. And that's what Asaph shows us in Psalm 73. He opens the psalm with these words, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he goes on to describe an experience that's familiar to every one of us, the, the experience of our feet almost stumbling, the experience of our steps nearly slipping upon seeing all the prosperity and, and success of the wicked. Asaph found himself feeling in his heart that he was being pulled in two directions. For a time he became envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw how the wicked seemed to to do and get whatever they want. And Asaph felt the allure of that. He, he felt the, the pull of that. He says in verses 12 and 13, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all that I do long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And sometimes we feel that too, don't we? One part of us wants to worship God and know God and, and glorify God. And then there's another part of us that wants to pursue the pleasures of the world. And so our hearts often become divided. We find ourselves with, with mixed motivations. But then in verse 17, Asaph went into the sanctuary of God and he discerned their end. Those whose hearts were oriented entirely the other way, away from God. And what did he find? 
God gave him eyes to see that God has set them in slippery places and that their ways are ultimately going to lead to ruin. And when Asaph saw that, what did he do? Asaph redevoted himself. He redevoted himself to pursue the things of God rather than those things of the world. And that's the second thing we want to consider together this morning, the holy pursuit. Now, before we get too far into it, we need to recognize that this pursuit, this holy pursuit is only possible if it is first worked in our hearts. This beatitude, like all the beatitudes before, it is not given to drive us to despair. But you recall that each of these beatitudes are gifts. These beatitudes are are declarations of blessing declared by none other than the Son of God Himself. By nature, it's true, our hearts are sick. They are desperately sick. They are deceitful of all things, and they still deceive us from time to time. By nature, they are impure in all their ways. It's a humbling problem. It's a problem that drives us to our knees to plead for mercy. But as we heard in the assurance of pardon, God is gracious to give us a new heart. God is gracious to keep the promise that He made to sprinkle clean water upon us and to cleanse us of all our uncleanness and all our idolatries. He's given us a new heart and placed a new spirit within us, causing us to walk in His statutes, to be careful, to obey His rules. That's what God has done for us. He's worked that saving faith in our hearts. So that no longer do we do as, as Israel did in 1 Kings 18. You recall that before that great contest on Mount Carmel, what did, what did the, the prophet say to the people of Israel? Elijah said, how long will you go on limping between two opinions, right? They wanted to serve Baal, the gods of the Philistines and of Canaan, and serve God as well. And then at the end of the showdown, when God consumed the altar, they fell on their knees. The Lord, the Lord, they said, He is God. That's what God works in our hearts. And so although it is good and right for us to mourn over the dividedness of our hearts, we need not mourn unto despair. We need to remember those words from 1 John 3 verse 20, which, which says, even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. God knows when our hearts condemn us. He knows when we begin to despair over the dividedness of our hearts. He knows when our hearts condemn us. But God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. In Christ, God deals gently with our hearts. He gives us new hearts. Fulfills the promise of Jeremiah 34, where He said He spoke similarly as He did in the days of Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 34, He said, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be My people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to Me with their whole heart. We pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86 as we sang in our psalm confession, unite my heart to fear your name. And the Lord answers that prayer. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, our chief prophet Christ, speaks into our divided hearts. As our only high priest, he purifies our divided hearts. As our eternal king, he, he brings our hearts into compliance with his character and his purpose and his desires. He reorients our hearts in a Godward direction. And so we begin to say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, and they do fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will, put everyone who, you will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. By the grace of God, Asaph came to recognize that what he really needed, what he really wanted, what he really needed to have was, was God himself. And so turning his gaze away from the pleasures of the world, he once again set his mind on the things that were above. And this is the holy pursuit that the Lord sets before us this morning. That as Paul says in Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. People of God, where have you set your minds? What are you seeking this morning? What are you most devoted to? Does your whole heart belong to the Lord? Or are you still trying to keep a little part of it for yourself? And a little part of it for the pleasures of the world? A little part of it for earning reputation before the world. The Word of God says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Do you see that this morning? Do you see how a divided heart only leads to ruin? If you don't see that, you need only look to the life of, of King Solomon. What did the Spirit of Christ say at the end of Solomon's reign? That as Solomon grew older, his heart was no longer wholly true to the Lord his God. And it cost him the lion's share of the kingdom. But Jesus is setting before us a better way this morning, the blessed way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is calling us to a new pursuit, a holy pursuit, the pursuit of God himself to say with the psalmist, as for me, it is good to be near God. I want to be near to God. I want to pursue God. It's calling us to a pursuit that recognizes there is no higher pleasure in all the world. That's why David prayed those words in Psalm 27 that we heard in our call to worship. One thing have I asked for, and that one thing will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord 
all the days of my life. He knew that there was no higher pleasure in all the world than to gaze upon the beauty of His covenant God. Can't we say the same thing this morning, that it is indeed good? It is good to be near to God. Day by day, month by month, year by year, we can get to know God better. We can come to know Him more fully, His grace more deeply. We should echo the words of the 13th century theologian Richard of Chichester. Lord, for these three things I pray, to see Thee more clearly, to love Thee more dearly, to follow Thee more nearly. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. Because there's nothing greater, is there? There's nothing higher. There's nothing more wonderful than the sight of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we've seen each of these Beatitudes, we recognize that this Beatitude also has with it a a present as well as a a future component to it. On the one hand, yes, there's a day coming we'll see God face to face. That's the day we long for and live for. There's also a sense in which the pure in heart begin to see something of God already now. Paul says that we, that we see Him through a dark glass dimly. The pure in heart see God in His world. They, they see God in His Word. Already now, we, we see Him in the, in the world that He has created. That was David's experience in Psalm 29, wasn't it? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. The skies declare His handiwork. This kind of seeing, of course, belongs only to the believer, to look out and survey the creative world and to see something of the glory and grandeur of the God who made it. As those who have come to know God, the pure in heart, can see God and His works throughout the history of the world. We can see His works, we can see Him in in our own personal lives as well. We can see His handiwork, we can see His his providence at at work in our lives. And certainly we can see Him in His Word as well. And we read His Word, we hear His voice and We see His grace and kindness. And the more that we commune with God in His Word, the more that we clearly see God. There's no higher good or higher pleasure in all the world. And it's true, what we now know in part, we shall one day know in full. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. To picture the psalmist's words in our minds, nevertheless, I am continually with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Boys and girls, did you know that spiritually speaking, God is holding your hands this morning. 
leading you and guiding you every step of the way, and He is bringing you all the way to glory, all the way to heaven, to see Jesus Christ face to face. That's what He's doing for His people, walking beside them, bringing them to glory. He's bringing us to the Revelation 22 place, the place where the river of life flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb, that place where the leaves of the tree of life are said to be for the healing of the nations. He's bringing us to that Revelation 22 place where we shall see His face, where nothing shall be accursed anymore, where their night is no more, where we no longer need a lamp or the sun because the, the Son of God is the lamp. And we'll see Him face to face. There's no higher pleasure in all the world. There's nothing in all the earth that can compare to this, to seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ, seeing Him not as people have made Him out to be, but seeing Him as the Apostle says, seeing Him as He really is. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, says the Apostle John that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. But beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We'll not need to recoil from Him. We'll not need to hide our faces from Him. Because all our impurities will have been burned away. And we'll see Him because we'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. Do you long for this this morning? Is this your heart's desire? The Apostle Paul says to Timothy that there is laid up in heaven a crown of righteousness for all those who long for Christ's appearing. Does that love and longing live in your hearts this morning? Are you devoted to God to live in a Godward direction? Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a great and glorious promise this is. There is none greater. This is why Jesus came. This is why He died. This is why He rose again. This is why He ascended into heaven, and this is why He is coming again in order that we might see God, in order that we might see His face, that we might live with Him and see Him forever. And so how can we not cry out with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God Himself is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We know that portion now in part, but now we see there's a day coming we'll know that portion more fully, beholding it in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we long to see you more clearly. We long to love you more dearly. We long to follow you more nearly. So give us an increasing measure, we pray, the purity of heart, which our Savior says is blessed by you. Lord, we confess that we are too often half-hearted creatures, 
We too often have one foot planted in the world and one foot planted in heaven. We are too often double-minded. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a single-minded devotion nor that we might love you with our whole heart. Yes, we pray with the psalmist, unite our hearts to fear your name. And Father, we pray that Christ would come quickly. That's the desire of our hearts this morning, O God, that Christ would come. For we long to see him face to face. But if he tarries, grant us fervency and grant us faithfulness. Grant us the purity of heart. For we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.